0: Welcome to Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm your host, Jim Dubois. President Donald Trump is threatening to pull the U.S. out of the Intermediate-Range Nuclear Forces, or INF, treaty with Russia. Trump is also promising to bolster the nation's nuclear arsenal until, in his words, other nuclear powers come to their senses. What does a potential withdrawal from the INF mean for U.S. relations with Russia and our European allies? Does it signal a return to a dangerous nuclear arms race and a revival of the Cold War? This week on Dialogue Minnesota, we sit down with University of Minnesota Assistant Professor of Political Science Mark Bell. He's an expert on nuclear weapons and proliferation and American foreign policy. He offers his insights on the INF and the possible consequences if the U.S. bows out of the treaty. We caught up with him at his office at the U. Professor Bell, welcome back to Dialogue Minnesota. Thank you. Near the end of October, President Trump announced that the U.S. would withdraw from the Intermediate-Range Nuclear Forces, or INF, treaty with Russia— Tell us about the INF Treaty. When was it signed and what was the initial purpose of the treaty?
1: Yeah, so this was a treaty that was signed by Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev in 1987 as the Cold War was sort of winding down. And the purpose of this treaty was to ban or to remove from Europe an entire class of nuclear weapons basically, intermediate-range, land-based missiles. So the treaty resulted in, in a lot of these missiles being removed from the European theater and has generally been regarded as successful in, in achieving that goal.
0: Who were the major players in developing the INF?
1: This was a treaty, obviously, that was um, sort of developed between the Soviet Union and and the United States. Gorbachev and Ronald Reagan signed it. It was then ratified overwhelmingly by the U.S. Senate, although there had been initially a fair degree of opposition to the INF, particularly in in more conservative Republican circles. But at the end of the day, it was ratified, I think, 93 to 5, so overwhelmingly by the Senate, and, and it came into force at that point.
0: Tell us about the circumstances that led to the need for a nuclear treaty. What was the state of the Cold War near the end of the 1980s?
1: Yeah, so this was sort of the result of a, a number of political factors towards the end of the Cold War. Obviously, Gorbachev had came in, was a reform-minded Soviet leader, was, was interested in reducing uh, Soviet expenditures, trying to get the Soviet economy on a more sustainable track. Similarly, Reagan had come into office concerned about the state of the nuclear balance in Europe. There were concerns that Russia had more of these kind of missiles Um, There was a lot of opposition within Europe to stationing similar capabilities in Europe on the western side, the so-called Euro-missiles crisis. And so this treaty in some ways served the purposes both of Gorbachev and of Reagan, and that's why it was sort of able to be negotiated and able to come into force.
0: What were the nuclear weapon capabilities of both the Russians and the U.S. nuclear arsenals at the time of the treaty?
1: Well, very significant on both sides. But I think there was an increasing acceptance that these short-range or intermediate-range missiles were more destabilizing than other capabilities that both sides had in their arsenals. These capabilities that could cause sort of local crises to very quickly spiral out of control, um, that could reduce the times that either side had to respond that these were sort of unnecessarily destabilizing capabilities and therefore that it was worth um, the effort to try to bring them under control and ultimately to get rid of them as the Cold War was sort of winding down anyway. How
0: do policy experts and world leaders currently view the INF? Do they credit the treaty with maintaining a clamp on the nuclear threat from Russia?
1: I mean, I think you see a variety of opinions. I mean, for some people, the signing of the INF was itself part of the end of the Cold War. This was a treaty that signified a fundamental shift in the U.S.-Soviet relationship and, and played a key role in sort of ending that conflict. On the other side, I think others see it as largely sort of a symptom of improving relations and a symptom of the end of the Cold War rather than sort of something that itself caused the Cold War to end. So I think you see a range of opinions. And I think that's mirrored in in the current debates about the Trump administration's proposal to withdraw from the INF. You see some people saying this may trigger, you know, a significant arms race in Europe again. And others saying that this was never sort of an important factor in and of itself, and therefore the U.S. leaving it um, will not change things significantly on on the ground.
0: How successful would you say the INF Treaty has been? Has it lived up to its intended purpose all these years later?
1: Yes, I mean, I think you you certainly see that it was broadly successful in its goals. I mean, a, a very large number of weapons covered by the INF Treaty were removed from the European theater and and were dismantled. The INF Treaty is still the only treaty, I believe, signed by two nuclear weapon states that actually eliminates a whole category of of nuclear weapons. So, yeah, so I think the INF Treaty has clearly been relatively successful in the goals it set itself. You've seen a, a substantial removal of these kinds of capabilities from the European theater. On the other hand, Since 2014, when the Obama administration first accused the Russians of fielding a a missile system that violates the INF and Russian counter accusations that U.S. missile defense systems violate the INF, you've seen greater tension and perhaps this reintroduction of systems that are potentially in violation of the INF. That said, I think it's hard to argue with that for a long period of time, the INF You know, was a significant factor in constraining the development of new nuclear systems within Europe. I think that's fairly clear.
0: What are President Trump's main
1: arguments uh, against the treaty as it stands now? The main argument that Trump has made is simply that the Russians are in violation of the treaty. And this was not something new to the Trump administration. The Obama administration in 2014 accused the Russians of fielding a system that was in violation of the treaty. Um, so that's what Trump's saying. I think others in his administration offer a an argument that includes that, but also makes an argument about the strategic balance in Asia. And particularly because this treaty was a bilateral one between the United States and the Soviet Union, Chinese intermediate-range missiles are not constrained by this treaty. And there's been concern, particularly among members of the sort of more hawkish parts of the defense establishment and the defense department and and other conservative sort of uh, defense thinkers, um, that this puts the United States at a significant disadvantage in Asia, particularly as Chinese military power grows in the region. We're
0: talking with Mark Bell. He's an assistant professor of political science at the University of Minnesota. He's an expert on nuclear weapons and proliferation. We're discussing President Trump's threat to withdraw from the intermediate-range nuclear forces treaty with Russia. How are we able to monitor compliance with this treaty?
1: Well, between the United States and the Soviet Union, inspections were permitted as part of the treaty. So you could go and inspect the missile sites and and other capabilities that were prohibited by the treaty. And then beyond that, the sort of standard tools that states use to kind of see what other states are up to, intelligence capabilities, satellite capabilities, espionage capabilities, all of these things which um, states do on a day-to-day basis to try and see what what other states are up to in the international system.
0: What are the possible consequences of pulling out of the treaty?
1: I mean, I think there are a few. Um, One possibility is that Russia feels... Uh, less constrained in deploying these systems. Uh, they can continue to do what they were doing in violation of the treaty, but now they're if the treaty no longer exists, then they're no longer in violation. So they can do that perhaps in a less constrained fashion. Uh, it reduces the uh, the leverage the United States has potentially to pressure Russia back into compliance. Um, there's the possibility that it triggers greater US deployment of these kind of systems in in Europe. Um, And then there's also the possibility that this changes the situation in in Asia, that the United States tries to deploy some of these types of systems that would have been in violation of the INF, uh, that it can now deploy some of those systems more freely uh, in Asia as a result.
0: Well, what is China's role in this decision? Or rather, how does the US relationship and the Russian relationship with China play a role in the decision to rethink the treaty?
1: I mean, I think it plays a very significant role. It's not a reason that Trump himself articulated, but certainly a lot of people um, in the sort of defense communities have described the... Um, the importance of the U.S.-China relationship uh, in in factoring into the thinking underlying this decision, and particularly China's growing advantage in land-based missiles that it has in the region, and, and the way in which this complicates potential U.S. military operations in the Western Pacific, if the U.S. needed to, for example, defend Taiwan, if it wanted to conduct military operations against North Korea, for example. China's considerable intermediate range missile advantage and land-based missile advantage maybe complicates um, U.S. efforts to conduct military operations in those regions. And therefore, the argument would be that withdrawal from the treaty, potentially at least, provides the United States with the opportunity to deploy some of these systems in response to Chinese uh, systems of this sort.
0: How has Russia reacted to President Trump's threat to withdraw from the treaty?
1: I mean, I think what you've seen so far is is Russia expressing regret that the United States is withdrawing from the treaty, but also essentially in some ways this is a sort of public relations gift to the Russians in that it now allows them to continue to do what they were doing, but to blame the United States for this treaty falling apart. I suspect that's what you'll see if indeed the United States does withdraw from the treaty, the Russians will blame the United States for this treaty having fallen apart and sort of move forward on that basis.
0: How are our NATO allies reacting to
1: the president's threat to withdraw from the treaty? I think you've seen a few different responses. Most NATO allies would like the United States to stay in the treaty. I think there's very little doubt about that. That said, you are seeing some, and for example, the British defense secretary made it clear that Russia has long been in violation of this treaty and therefore that there was certainly a justification at least for withdrawal from the treaty. Uh, but I think most European countries, and after all, these are the countries that are in range of the missiles that are banned by the INF, would prefer the United States to stay in the treaty and use um, the diplomatic leverage that that provides, additional sanctions and so on, to try to pressure Russia back into compliance with the treaty. I think most European leaders, and this is what they've said, is, is that they don't feel that sort of diplomatic avenues have been sufficiently... Tested or sufficiently exhausted to justify pulling out at this stage, it would be better to impose sanctions to try to pressure Russia back into compliance in various ways and, and try to make progress on that front. Um, because there's very little appetite within Europe, he's within most European capitals, for the United States redeploying systems of this sort on their territory. So, so I think most Europeans would prefer to avoid that situation and therefore would rather that the United States stayed in the treaty and put pressure on the Russians to come back into compliance with it.
0: How would the dissolution of the INF affect U.S. relations with Russia?
1: You know, some people have said this risks sort of triggering a a new arms race in Europe. I think those fears are somewhat overstated. Um, I think this complicates relationships with Russia primarily because it complicates relationships with European allies. This is part of, you know, what Russia would like is for NATO to be weakened, for there to be greater tensions between uh, the United States and uh, NATO allies in Europe. And I think this has the possibility of stimulating and triggering more of those tensions. Um, So to that extent, I think the Russians uh, would see the collapse of the INF as being broadly in their interests.
0: How might withdrawal from the INF affect U.S. relations with our European allies and the rest of the world?
1: I think two things to say on that. Firstly, it's certainly a cause of some tension with Europe. On the other hand, I think this is a less significant source of tension than a lot of the other things that are going on in the world. The withdrawal from the Iran nuclear deal, I think is a far bigger problem in US-EU relations than the INF. I think the disputes over trade are also a bigger issue in the US-EU relationship than the INF. So I think, although this certainly isn't, Uh, something that's going to have a positive effect on on US-EU relations, it doesn't have the same status as as some of these other issues that are causing tension in the US-EU relationship. That said, I think it speaks to a broader tendency within the Trump administration that is of great concern to the EU, um, which is a general tendency to walk away from international agreements, whether that's the Iran nuclear deal, whether it's the Paris climate accord, whether it's uh, various other international agreements that the United States is either expressing skepticism about or seeking to renegotiate or or withdrawing from. And so I think this plays into that broader narrative in a way that I think uh, European leaders find concerning and, and are opposed to.
0: Well, do our EU and NATO allies find the U.S. now perhaps a less reliable ally, given this talk?
1: Yes, I mean, I think that's true. And and in some ways, that's been a deliberate goal of the Trump administration foreign policy. I mean, clearly Trump, since the campaign, has been very consistent in expressing skepticism about the value of U.S. alliances to the United States. This has been reflected both in, you know, complaints that NATO allies are not paying their fair share— Um, that the United States is subsidizing the security of these countries. And these are complaints that that US presidents on both sides of the aisle have made over the decades. But Trump has been much more explicit about it, much more sort of pointed about it. So I think you've certainly seen this tendency that Trump has tried to make it the case that the United States is a less reliable ally, to make it so that um, European states and other countries that the United States are allied with are less confident of US assistance and therefore potentially maybe willing to do more themselves to provide for their own security. So I think this is a very deliberate strategy. And certainly I think um, European leaders are taking note of the more sort of independent course that the United States seems to be taking. And therefore I think you're also seeing uh, European leaders being more willing to chart uh, their own independent course in in international politics, for example, by trying to um, in some ways circumvent US sanctions on Iran Um, in trying to maintain the Iran nuclear deal despite the U.S. withdrawal uh, and so on.
0: When Dialogue Minnesota returns, more of our conversation with University of Minnesota Assistant Professor of Political Science Mark Bell on a potential U.S. withdrawal from the Intermediate-Range Nuclear Forces Treaty with Russia. Welcome back to Dialogue Minnesota. I'm your host, Jim Dubois. Now, more of our conversation with University of Minnesota Assistant Professor of Political Science Mark Bell on a potential U.S. withdrawal from the Intermediate-Range Nuclear Forces Treaty with Russia. President Ronald Reagan, one of the most iconic figures of the Republican Party, signed the INF in 1987. If President Trump backs out of this treaty, is this a blow to Reagan's legacy?
1: Yes, I mean, I think it's it's actually very interesting that the arguments that the Trump administration is deploying in favor of withdrawal from the INF are exactly the same ones that conservative critics of Ronald Reagan also made back in the 1980s. So Trump has sort of, in some ways, sort of adopted the arguments that were deployed against Ronald Reagan in the 1980s. So, yes, I mean, I think to the extent that the INF was one of the most substantial international diplomatic achievements of the Reagan administration, then certainly this is sort of at least a partial repudiation of that Reagan foreign policy. You know, I think all treaties, you know, have their day and not all treaties last forever. And some um, get kind of overtaken by events that are less relevant than they were in the past. And I think to some degree that's true of the INF. Um, Nonetheless, this is clearly a a sort of major plank in the legacy of the Reagan administration and of Ronald Reagan's sort of general approach to foreign policy. And so if the INF does indeed uh, fall apart, then that certainly would be and should be seen as a significant repudiation of the Reagan administration foreign policy.
0: The doomsday clock measures the likelihood of a human-made global nuclear catastrophe. Has the clock responded at all to President Trump's uh, threats to withdraw from the INF?
1: I don't actually know whether it's changed since then. I think compared to other things going on in the nuclear realm, I would put the INF withdrawal at a uh, somewhat less important than things going on with respect to Iran and with respect to North Korea. I think while this um, is significant, it probably will not trigger a major arms race in Europe. It probably will not lead either Russia or the United States to begin doing things in a significant way that they're not already doing. Um, so I don't think this substantially changes the risk of nuclear war occurring or the type of nuclear war that would occur if, if one were to break out. So I think some of the criticisms of and worries about the consequences of withdrawal from the INF are somewhat overstated at least. Uh, I think compared to other nuclear risks, uh, the risk of a us a russian nuclear war is, is lower than and should be less concerning to people than other nuclear risks going on in the world.
0: A year ago, many were concerned about North Korea's threat to employ nuclear weapons. Will the INF Treaty affect concerns about either North Korea or Iran, whose nuclear deal with the U.S. was also dissolved under President Trump?
1: I mean, I think with respect to North Korea, it it perhaps plays into a skepticism that North Korea already has about making deals with the United States. You know, I think North Korea sees what happens to deals that the United States signs and does not necessarily view them as a particularly reliable way to safeguard its own interests. So if North Korea looks at what has happened to Iran, right, made a deal to give up a substantial portion of its uh, nuclear program, to accept a lot of restraints on its nuclear program, and a couple of years later, the United States walks away from that deal. So I think North Korea is skeptical of deals that it could make with the United States. Maybe the INF withdrawal sort of plays into that narrative, but I think that's something that the North Koreans have understood plenty well enough for some time now. And I'd you know, i be surprised if this had a substantial effect on North Korean thinking. I think uh, the likelihood of North Korea willingly giving up its nuclear weapons were very low before this and they're very low after this. So I don't see any significant shift occurring as a result of the INF. And similarly with, with Iran, if Iran decides it wants to pursue nuclear weapons, I suspect it will do so for reasons that are not particularly related to the U.S. decisions about the INF.
0: We're talking with Mark Bell. He's an assistant professor of political science at the University of Minnesota. He's an expert on nuclear weapons and proliferation. We're discussing President Trump's threat to withdraw from the intermediate-range nuclear forces treaty with Russia. During the Cold War, there was much discussion about mutually assured destruction or MAD. And that was uh, the deterrent, largely, that uh, kept a nuclear war at bay. The thought that rational actors on both the American and the Soviet sides would not press the button, so to speak, knowing that their country would be as badly damaged as their, uh, their enemy's country. Are we now probably in a position where we should be more concerned about the security of the Russian nuclear arsenal? Is there a possibility that a rogue state or terrorist who could see some of that, is it as well protected as the American's uh, nuclear
1: arsenal is? So certainly in in the immediate aftermath of the Cold War in the early 1990s, there were a lot of fears about so-called loose nukes, Soviet uh, nuclear materials that weren't well secured. Um, And it was less a fear about the weapons themselves, although that was somewhat a fear, but but also about um, nuclear materials in various facilities around the Soviet Union and and around the world more broadly. Because the fact is, if you have nuclear materials, um, particularly if you have highly enriched uranium, actually making a nuclear weapon is is not that technically a difficult thing to do. And, And a reasonably sophisticated terrorist organization could potentially do that. And this motivated a lot of efforts um, throughout the 1990s and since then to secure nuclear materials. And it also motivated a lot of, so this occurred in the in the 1990s under the Clinton administration with a lot of efforts by um, Sam Nunn and, and others to so-called cooperative threat reduction to secure a lot of materials in the Soviet Union. And then in the Obama administration, the so-called nuclear security summits, Um, in which there was a concerted effort by a lot of countries to secure remaining stockpiles of highly enriched uranium and and plutonium. I think those efforts have been largely successful. Nuclear materials around the world are not completely secure, but they're unimaginably more secure than they were in the early part of the 1990s. Um, That said, in some ways, the threat has increased in the sense that uh, we're probably more worried about terrorist organizations with the interest and the capabilities to acquire uh, these kind of materials than we perhaps were in the early 1990s. So uh, while the ease of acquiring these materials has probably gone down, uh, the demand for acquiring these materials may have risen. So certainly I think uh, nuclear terrorism remains a, a valid risk that people are concerned about and that that continues to sort of result in in significant investments of government money around the world to try to secure uh, remaining stockpiles of these materials.
0: Many Americans alive today have no memory of the Cold War. And uh, they also have no memory of the response to the Cold War through civil defense activities, the concepts that were around for a while about uh, digging a hole and protecting yourself and being able to potentially survive a nuclear exchange with an enemy. Do you think we would ever see a return to the Cold War and a Cold War mentality that would uh, press the U.S. or our opponents to begin to increase their nuclear weapon stockpile?
1: I mean, I think you're seeing a general rise in tension between great powers in general, whether that's uh, U.S.-Russia, whether it's U.S.-China, and so on. So I think that's that's one trend. I think you're also seeing a trend in the United States towards greater reliance on nuclear weapons, particularly in the Pacific as Chinese military power rises. I think what is likely to occur is the United States putting greater reliance on its nuclear weapons uh, to deter actions by the Chinese that, that it can no longer deter with conventional forces. And I think this is likely to be a trend that will continue over the next few decades. What I think you've also seen is, in general, a substitution for... Whereas during the Cold War, there was a relatively low risk of a sort of all-out nuclear war between the Soviet Union and the United States. And that was in part what triggered these various sort of civil defense efforts, um, efforts to to try to come up with ways to make a sort of all-out nuclear war survivable in some sense. I think what you see now is is a greater range of threats of lower-level nuclear conflict, whether that's in India-Pakistan, whether it's in the US-China context, uh, whether it's in uh, the US or NATO-Russia context in Eastern Europe. I think you see a, a greater range of situations where there might plausibly be sort of what we might call limited nuclear war, wars that wouldn't escalate to the level of all-out nuclear sort of exchange between two superpowers capable of destroying each other's um, societies, but a higher risk of of more limited nuclear use. So that's, I think, the way in which um, the current sort of nuclear environment is somewhat different to the environment that characterized the Cold War.
0: Mark Bell is an assistant professor of political science at the University of Minnesota and an expert on nuclear weapons and proliferation. Professor Bell, thank you so much for joining us on Dialogue
1: Minnesota. Thank you for having me.
0: You've been listening to Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. The midterm elections are looming and the stakes are high as both major political parties battle for control of Congress, the state legislature, and state constitutional offices. Join us next time as University of Minnesota Associate Professor of Political Science Catherine Pearson analyzes the election results. I'm Jim Dubois. Thanks for listening.